You know, I was listening to Natalie as she was singing, and I love that song. And uh, I think the reason for it in part is because we normally praise the Lord for his sacrifice, his resurrection, those kinds of, of things. But when I see those words, uh, you know, for a rocking chair and the laughter of children, that's really the way we ought to live our lives, just praising the Lord for the mundane things of life, shouldn't we? I mean, that the heat's on this morning. Praise you, Lord. <laughs> that the sun's shining. Praise the Lord. That my car had enough gas to get down here. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I'm just a... You got on a pair of nice shoes over there. Praise the Lord for those shoes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm serious. I think that that's the way we ought to live our lives, just grateful to God for everything He gives. Well, that's not the sermon today, so let me get on with what I'm supposed to do. Mark Twain wrote, Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Now, probably anyone who had a brother or a sister who did everything perfectly can understand that. There is nothing more difficult to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. The reason for that is because a good example can inspire us but does not enable us. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is both our example and our enabler. For instance, He is our example concerning submission. The Bible says that we are to be submissive to the Lord. And uh, He was an example of submission. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.8, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even though Jesus was one with the Father, He nevertheless humbled Himself. He is our example of submission. He is also our example of obedience. We are to be obedient to the Lord. And the Scripture tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was praying, He said, Father, if there's some way for man to be saved other than my death, then let this cup pass from me, but not my will, thine be done. So He then is our example, but He also enables us. In Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote, He who began a good work in you will perfect or complete it. So that's where we are today as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Salvation comes with a purpose. 
But what is the purpose of salvation? I'm assuming that most of you are saved today, that you've been born again, that you know the Lord. So what then is the purpose of salvation? There are many who would say, well, the purpose is that we go to heaven. No, that's the result of salvation. One day we will go to heaven, but that is not the purpose of salvation. You see, if the purpose of salvation was that we go to heaven, then as soon as we're saved, we ought to go to heaven because our purpose is fulfilled. So if going to heaven is not the purpose of salvation, what then is it? It is that you might become like Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul wrote, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to what? He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. All right? So the purpose then of salvation is that you might become like Jesus. That is what God wants to accomplish in your life. So you must understand as a follower of Christ, the intention is, the purpose is that you become like Jesus. Now, here's the command in verse number 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what is Paul saying there? Is he, is he saying to us that we are saved by works? Work out your salvation that I am saved by doing works? Is that what he is saying? Now, let me remind you, as I understand Scripture concerning salvation, there are three parts to it. First of all, there is justification. That's when you're converted. That's when you're born again. You become a child of God. Now, justification, you are saved from the penalty of sin. I am not going to hell. It's not that I don't deserve it, but I have been justified by God. So that is the first part of salvation, justification. I am justified. The second part of salvation is sanctification. Now, after I am saved or I have been justified, now God begins to work in my life, conforming me to the image of Jesus. So I am in the process then of being saved from the power of sin. So in justification, I am saved from the penalty of sin in sanctification, I am in the process of being saved from the power of sin. The third part is glorification. That's when I go to heaven. And then I will be saved from the presence of sin. So as I understand the way the Bible teaches salvation, there are three parts to it. There is that part where I am justified, I am born again, I am converted. God then, or the Holy Spirit then, begins to work in my life, conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. One day I'll go to heaven and my salvation then will be complete. Paul here is not speaking of justification. He is speaking of sanctification. So understand when he is saying work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he is not speaking of being born again. He is not speaking of being justified. He is speaking of being sanctified. Now the reason I say that is twofold. First of all, because he is writing to people who are already saved. You'll notice in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints... 
people who've already been saved. So he is writing his letter then to people who are saved. The second reason I say that is because salvation is God's work. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So salvation then, being born again, the miracle of salvation is what God does. Now when he says work out in the Greek, that is in the middle voice. The subject both performs and is affected by the action. John Stinsrud wrote, It means that God effects an action in us, and at the same time, we perform the same action. We allow God to work in our lives, and simultaneously, we must work out the Christian life through obedience and humility. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he is not speaking of conversion. He is speaking instead of completion. Did you notice he said, work out your salvation? He did not say, work for your salvation. In the Greek, literally, it means to bring to completion. So we have salvation. We are to work it to completion. Let me give you an example. How many of you go to the gym somewhere, hopefully to the Family Life Center here at First Baptist Church, but you go to a gym somewhere to work out your bodies? Are you a bunch of slugs? I mean, is that all? How many of you work out? I mean, and I'm not saying every day, but I'm saying some. All right. Well, now let me ask you a question. When you go to work out your body, do you have your body when you go, or do you get it as a result of working out? You already have your body, and you go and work out your body. The word actually is a farming word. It is, uh, it is a word that speaks of a farmer who is working out his field. He is working his field. He has the field. Now he is working the field. So when he says work out your salvation, he is not saying that we work for our salvation. He is talking about growth. It is expected that if one is saved, listen, if one is saved, it is expected that you grow in your relationship with Christ, that you grow into maturity. There are people, I, I think, who think salvation means that when the invitation is given, I walk down the aisle, I shake the preacher's hand, he gives me a card to fill out, and I sit down. That's it. That's the Great Commission. Fill out that card and sit down. No, that's not what it is. After a person has been saved, it is expected that you begin to grow in your relationship to Christ. It also suggests responsibility. He said, work out whose salvation? Your salvation. Work out. In other words, God has saved you. You are unique, and he expects you to work out your salvation being true to who you are. I've told you before, when I first started preaching, you know, everybody wanted to be Billy Graham. I mean, he was, he was it. So, I mean, you know, I'd stand up there. I tried to develop a North Carolina accent, which didn't work so well. If you grew up in West Texas, it's hard to have a North Carolina accent. So I'm standing up there. I'm 
trying to talk like Billy Graham and I give the invitation and tell the people, the buses will wait. There are not 50 people in the congregation. We are not supposed to be someone else. We are supposed to be who we are. Work out your salvation. Now, what he is doing here is contrasting the believer with the non-believer in our attitude. Verse number 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I hope you underline that in your Bible. Albert Barnes said, as he comments on this, in a quiet, peaceful, inoffensive manner, let there be no brawls, strifes, or contentions without grumbling. A believer is not to be a grumbler. See, that was the issue, one of the issues with the Jews. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 8 through 10, Nor let us act immorally, nor let us try the Lord, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, if you read about the Jews when they are in the wilderness following Moses, Moses almost had a nervous breakdown. I mean, he, he said, God, this kill me now. If I'm going to have to put, they griped about everything. They griped about the food. They grumbled about his leadership. They grumbled about this. They grumbled about that. They grumbled about all of it. So that's what Paul is referring to there in 1 Corinthians. They sound like Baptists, don't they? Jewish Baptists. I mean, it sounds, sounds like us. I heard about a, a man who said, I'm going to go home and if dinner is not ready, if it's not on the table, he said, I'm going to give my wife fits. And if it is, I'm not going to eat it. Well, I know people who are just like that. It doesn't make any difference what you do. It is the wrong thing to do. Sidney Harris wrote, When I complain, I do it because it's good to get things off my chest. When you complain, I remind you that griping doesn't help anything. We're not to be grumblers, folks. If we know the Lord, if we know the Lord, we are not to be grumblers. And then disputing. Vines says disputing denotes primarily an inward reasoning, an opinion, then a deliberate questioning, then a disputing doubt. Now, let me tell you what that means because I think this is really important to the health of a church. We are not to be grumblers, and I thank God that there is very, very, very little grumbling in this church. Thank God for that. That's one of those. I praise the King for that. There's very little grumbling in this church. And then he uses the word disputing. Now, what the word disputing means then is that I have an opinion. I begin to raise questions, and I create doubt in the minds of others. That's what that word means. That there is an issue that the church is dealing with, let's say. I have an opinion. I begin to raise questions. And now I create doubt in the minds of others. He said, no, that's not right for a Christian. That is not right for a follower of Christ. He says, grumbling, disputing. And then look at verse number 15. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So what he is saying is that if we have different attitudes, then we will produce different actions. He's drawing this contrast again. The crooked versus the blameless. We live in a crooked world, do we not? We, you can say that about this world. It is a crooked world. I mean, they even, at least 
The allegation is they even deflate footballs. You talk about crooked. We live in a crooked world. Now, what does he say to us in this crooked world? We are to be blameless. We may live in a crooked world, but we are to be blameless, which means pure, sincere. And then there's darkness versus light. He says that we live in a world that is spiritually dark. We would agree with that. We live in a world that is spiritually dark. Okay, what are we to do? We're to be the light. Barnes wrote, The image then is that as those lighthouses are placed on a dangerous coast to apprise vessels of their peril and to save them from shipwreck so the light of Christian piety shines on a dark world. We have not been called just to curse the darkness. We have been called to shine as lights. And he says that if our attitude is different, our actions will be different as well. We live in a crooked world. We are to be blameless, pure, sincere. He said we live in a world that is dark spiritually. He said we are to be the light that is warning people. So the purpose for your salvation is that you become like Jesus. That's what God is working to do in your life, that you become like Jesus. Now, we see the power given in verse number 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, in verse number 12, we have our responsibility. In verse number 13, there's the enablement. Jesus is both, remember. So he gives us responsibility, verse number 12 and verse number 13. He talks about our power, the enablement. The power to work out our salvation. And what he is saying is that the power to work out your salvation does not come from the presence of Paul. It comes instead from the presence of the Holy Spirit. To will. The power to will. God does not compel us to will. He influences us and affects our will. Ladies and gentlemen, if we are Christians, we may not be perfect, but we want to be, do we not? If we are Christians, I, we may not be sinless, but I can promise you that if you know the Lord, that's what you want. I've had people to say to me before, because I do believe in the doctrine of the security of the believer, once saved, always saved, and they say, well, if I believe that, I'd sin all I wanted to. My response is, I sin more than I want to. If you know Jesus Christ, your desire is that I do not sin. That's, that's the will. That's, that's a part of the, of the will. That, and then he says, and to work. For his good pleasure. Albert Barnes wrote, No man should adduce this passage to prove that God works in him to lead him to commit sin. This passage teaches no such doctrine. Folks, when God works in us and produces a will within us, he affects our will and our work. It is to do his good pleasure. I hear more and more Christians today saying, Well, you know, this is, this, I'm doing such and such as the Bible condemns as sin. They say, well, you know, God is working in my life. No, he's not. Not in that regard. When God works in our life, what we want to do and what we are committed to do is his good pleasure. We want to honor him. It's not us. Now, he gives us the power, but then also the tools to enable us. The first tool that is available that enables us to do his good pleasure is Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 
I would encourage you to appreciate the Bible as the Word of God. I really do believe that it is the Word of God, that it is infallible, that it is an error, that it is the Word of God. And we ought to have high regard for it. I'm always interested in when people speak to me about their religion or whatever, and I want to know what they think about the Bible. Because we are to appreciate the Word of God, hold it in high regard, appreciate it, appropriate it. He said you accepted it as the Word of God. Dr. Landrum Level, who was a friend to Lyndon Me, president of New Orleans Seminary, made the statement one time that because we, you know, as Baptists especially, we like to pound the book and say we believe the Bible. And his response was, you only believe what you practice. I'm afraid he's right. You know, it's easy to tell everybody how much of the Bible I believe, but the fact is we only believe what we practice. We appropriate it into our lives and then we apply it. He said it performs its work in you. When Peter was in the boat and Jesus said to him, Come, he got out of the boat and walked on water in response to the word. So, ladies and gentlemen, as far as the power of God is concerned to work in you, it is Scripture. The second tool is prayer. Before Pentecost came, there were 120 believers in the upper room praying. And after they had prayed, there was Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. That's power. When Simon Peter was in prison, there was a church praying for him. And as they prayed, he was released from his chains. That's power. The tools that enable us to be what God wants us to be is Scripture, prayer. Someone said at our prayer conference, where there is no prayer, there is no power. Where there is little prayer, there is little power. Where there is much power, uh, much prayer, there is much power. The tools to enable you, Scripture, prayer, and suffering. In chapter 1, verse number 29, Paul wrote, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. We are enabled through our suffering. So there's the power given and then the joy promised. When we live with purpose in the power of the Holy Spirit, we walk in joy. There's joy hereafter, verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The life to come is a life of joy for the believer. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, looking in unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, Jesus looked beyond Calvary to eternity. He was able to face the suffering of Calvary because of the joy of eternity. There is joy in the hereafter. You and I cannot imagine the joy that God has prepared for us. Revelation 21.4 says, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The Bible says that when we get to heaven in eternity, it says that there is no death. Sometimes uh, my, my heart is really heavy when someone dies. and They've served the Lord. They've loved the Lord. And 
and I don't, I don't understand it, and, and especially if it's a young person and maybe they have children at home and all of that, and your heart breaks, right? There's no death in heaven. The Bible says that there's no sorrow. Now, we live with sorrow in this life, but there is no sorrow in heaven. The Scripture says there is no crying. Well, if there's no death and there is no sorrow, then there is no crying. And he says there is no pain because pain has been replaced with eternal joy. There is joy to come. There's joy in eternity. And my friend, you and I can anticipate it, but we don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be a great time. When we get to heaven, it is going to be a great time because of the joy that the Lord has prepared. But I want you also to know until we get there, there is joy here. We don't have to wait for joy as believers. There's the joy of sacrifice, verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul saw himself as a drink offering being poured out for these people, and he said, I rejoice in it. I rejoice in it. There's the joy of sacrifice. There's the joy of service. He says in verse 17, the service of your faith. The happiest people are those people who serve. I learned years ago, and it was a totally different deal, but those people who complain the most, they grumble the most, are people who don't give anything. And that's strange to me. Those people who are involved, those people who give, those people who support, they are the people who are the happiest. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. There's the joy of satisfaction in verse number 18. Paul says, And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So as we conclude, there are three reminders from our text. The first being that Jesus is our example. He inspires us. He also enables us. He is our example. He is our example of submission. He is our example of obedience. He is our example. The second thing I learned from this is that the Holy Spirit is our power. We are enabled, empowered to do what the Lord calls us to do because of the, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, folks, the Bible says, greater is he who is within, speaking of the Holy Spirit inside, greater is he who is within than he who is of the world. So the Lord then gives you the power that you need through the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, joy is the result. Joy is the result. Billy Graham was being interviewed by Charles Gibson when he preached his last crusade in New York. Gibson asked him if he were looking forward to going to heaven. Billy Graham said, yes, I can't wait. Because I want to see God. And then in the interview, Billy Graham told him about in 2000 when the leaders of Charlotte wanted to have an honor for him and have him to come and to speak and so forth so that they could honor their favorite son. And uh, he told Gibson that he had gone uh, for the ceremony and so forth. And he told the story while he was there that I heard told again recently, but he told a story of, about Albert Einstein who was on a train. He was going somewhere. The conductor came by taking up tickets. And as he came by taking up the tickets, uh, Dr. Einstein couldn't find his ticket. And the conductor said, we know who you are. Don't worry about it. Said, you know, don't worry about it. 
Well, he kept looking. He's down. He's looking for that ticket. And the conductor said, Dr. Hines said, we know who you are. Don't worry about it. He said, it's no problem. He said, we know who you are. And Einstein said, yes, but I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> Billy Graham said that he had gone to the, he told that story. He said he had gone to the meeting. His wife and his daughter had told him he needed to get a new suit. He said, because my suits were getting a little frayed, so he bought a new suit. Billy said, I am wearing a brand new suit. This is the suit I will be buried in. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. Let me ask you, do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Do you know where you're going? You can, because the Bible says that Jesus Christ died for you to pay for your sins, to offer you forgiveness, if you're willing to accept it. And I pray today that if you've never received the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, that you will. In a moment, we will extend that invitation, and it is an opportunity for you to be converted, to be justified. Our gracious Father in God, we come to this time of invitation. I pray for those who are not saved. Lord, that today they would trust you as Lord and Savior to be forgiven, to become a child of God. Lord, I pray for those who need to make other commitments to join the church, whatever it is that you're speaking to their hearts about, that they will be obedient in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir is going to sing. We extend an invitation for you to come and make a commitment to Christ the Savior to join the church, to join with us. We'd love to have you. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you if you do.